for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of BizTalk, geared for growth, a guide for China's economic recovery in 2023. I'm Michael Wong. So today we are going to unpack the main messages sent at China's annual Central Economic Work Conference. And for our international audience who may not be too aware of what this conference is about, this conference is held in December of every year. And during the meeting, top policymakers decide on the priorities for economic work in the following year. So if we look back at 2022, China has kept inflation in check. Food and energy security were safeguarded. Employment was stabilized and supply chains remained quite resilient here in China. In all this, of course, despite the challenges from COVID-19 and some of the external pressures we saw in the global economy as the global economy faced a slowdown. And we also, of course, have rising recession risks in many of the major advanced economies. So uh, as we gear up for 2023, many, I think, will be looking to see just how strong the recovery momentum will be in the world's second largest economy. And definitely the Central Economic Work Conference will provide us with some more clues on that front. Uh, what are the signals sent from the work conference and what are the economic priorities for 2023? Let's discuss all of that and bring in our panelists to today. We have Mr. Ding Shuang, who is the Chief Economist of Greater China and North Asia at Standard Chartered. We also have Dr. Wang Huiyao, who is the president at the Think Tank uh, Center for China and Globalization. Dr. Wang was also a former counselor at China State Council, and we also have uh, Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novum RK Technologies. So welcome to all of you. Dr. Wang, I want to begin with you in terms of just setting the overall tone for us in terms of what were your main takeaways from the Central Economic Work Conference that was held here in Beijing. Do you feel there is a pro-growth bias uh, and a tone that was sent from this year's work conference? It is exactly uh, ushering a new year for, for, the, for the next year, particularly after three years of almost lockdown. What I think now, it, it, we need such a strong confidence boost because uh, uh, I think this uh, Central Economic World Conference has sent several uh, very positive signals. As first, it, it, it emphasized the growth and uh, you know, that uh, going to be uh, geared up for the next year. Second, I think there's a quite a few re-emphasized, which I think is very important. You know, re-emphasize the private sector, the, the private enterprises. We have to attach great importance to them. Re-emphasize the, uh, the the you know the domestic market. We need more uh, revival uh, uh, of the of the domestic market, such as real estate, probably. Also, the uh, uh, the talent. We have to emphasize. We need to import more talent, and also emphasize foreign enterprises. We have to really. Uh, create all the conditions for attracting them uh, back and also facilitate their visit, uh, uh, do their very best. And of course, finally, they talk about uh, the, the Chinese big companies uh, in the private sectors. They have to facilitate all those platform companies uh, to go uh, global and uh, uh, to be more competitive. So of course, uh, they, they, were, they were also talking about revive the consumptions uh, of domestic uh, uh, economy. And that's very, very much uh, uh, important because of the uh, you know, the, the next year we're going to see if the economy is going to hit another uh, six, seven per percent. We have to really revive. We have to use all the tools we have. So speaking of growth and how much consumption could be driving growth next year, Mr. Ding, I want to come to you. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Standard Charter calls for 5.8 percent economic growth 
for China next year, which is above market consensus right now. Out of that, how much do you think consumption will contribute to that growth? Because from the readout of the Central Economic Work Conference, the first thing that was mentioned in the to-do list was to prioritize and expand domestic consumption. Yes, indeed. Consumption underwhelmed in 2022. But the recent shift in policy, the relaxation of COVID control measures, that paved the way for a normalization of consumption uh, next year. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think the recent surge of the COVID infections could deal a blow to near-term uh, consumption and economic activity. But if we look at experience of other countries, uh, in, in a few months, uh, possibly uh, at the end of the first quarter, we may see uh, the consumption start to get back to the normal level. Uh, our base uh, assumption, uh, assuming there will be a pent-up demand, uh, improving uh, employment outlook, and also based on uh, elevated household savings. Uh, we assume that the household consumption uh, will get back to the pre-pandemic trend level in the second half of the year. And that is equivalent to about 4 to 4.5 percentage point contribution from consumption. So that underpins our uh, above consensus GDP growth forecast for next year of 5.8%. Mm. And Jiaohe, so the CEWC, the work conference, talks about boosting the ability to consume. It talks about improving the conditions to consume and creating new opportunities and ways to consume as well. So based on that statement and tone, can we expect more pro-consumption policies in 2023? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the government is really keen on improving the consumption right now because, you know, when we look at the past three years, the investment has been taking a very uh, important job for economic growth. The export has been strong, but the cons consumption has been depressed somehow because of the anti-COVID measures has been taken. Uh, so, it's, it's, so it's quite many policies that the government can and will use in the coming year, I believe. There will be many, many ways to look at that. They can give consumers coupons, they can give subsidies to consumption companies, uh, stimulating tourism industry, even expand some of the holidays, who knows? Uh, Mr. Ding, you mentioned pent-up demand and consumption as a driver for growth next year, but some analysts question just how strong that pent-up demand may potentially be, even for the second half of the uh, of next year, because if we take a look at wage growth, it's been a bit anemic relative to pre-pandemic years, and there is still that negative wealth effect from a still recovering property sector. So given all of that, how, how strong do you think that consumption rebound really will be? Or do you think consumers will remain still a little bit more cautious for a little bit longer? Yeah, first, I'd like to clarify, we are talking about a normalization of consumption uh, instead of what some people may call the revenge consumption. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's more about getting back to a normal life. Uh, if we look at the current consumption level, especially in, in the service uh, area, it's way below the pre-pandemic uh, level. Uh, if we look at the box office, the catering and restaurant, uh, the air travel, railway travel, so getting back to the pre-pandemic level, that would already suggest a big, very big potential for the rebound uh, in, the, in the second half. Uh, so let's actually, uh, it's very, quite difficult to predict the consumer's behavior, but uh, we can actually turn to history, the recent history for some guidance, uh, that is 2021. Uh, after the first shock, uh, COVID shock of 2020, 
uh, we see the consumption rebounded very quickly. Of, uh, in 2021, consumption growth more than 9%, contributing 5.3 percentage point to the 8.1% GDP growth. Uh, so we are actually uh, talking about uh, a normalization, and that, I think, with the uh, improving, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, job opportunities and uh, income, uh, that would uh, be, I think, uh, provide a, a lot of uh, boost to the consumption. Uh, Mr. Ding, in the readout of the work conference, fiscal policy will remain proactive for next year. Monetary policy will remain prudent. Fiscal policy will remain uh, targeted and more effective. Um, are there any other nuances that you saw, perhaps, from the readout of the work conference that may suggest uh, further implications for growth next year? Uh, I would say the Central Economic Conference uh, called for a strengthening of the macro policy adjustment. My interpretation is a macro policy will still be quite uh, supportive and accommodative. On the mm. fiscal side, uh, as you already mentioned, uh, uh, I think uh, the government is likely to, uh, they want the fiscal policy to be stronger and uh, uh, more effective. And in particular, they talked about to maintain the intensity of the fiscal spending, but in the meantime, to safeguard the fiscal sustainability and keep the local government debt risk under control. So my interpretation of that is, first, oh, I do not expect a super stimulus, uh, I think, for 2023. Uh, but the official deficit uh, ratio uh, last year it was 2.8% of GDP. It could be increased slightly uh, to show, uh, I think, a more proactive fiscal policy. And also, uh, the focus will be more on the spending side. Uh, unlike last year, it's more about tax cut. And we may see more uh, transfer from the central government to the local government to increase the local government spending capacity without increasing their fiscal stress. So, Mr. Ding, when China continues to optimize its COVID-19 policies, and we do see that consumption rebound for next year, how reflationary do you think that might be? Because inflation was kept quite in control during these pandemic years. But once China further optimizes its COVID policy and we see that reopening, what is that going to mean for inflation here? If, if we look at other countries, reopening usually uh, is followed by high inflation. Uh, I think that could be... Uh, more or less the case for China as well, but the degree of the inflation rebound could be much less compared with uh, the US or Europe, for example, uh, where the, the inflation rate arrives to uh, close to about 10%. Uh, I think the special uh, situation here is uh, when China reopened, when China's economy recover, the rest of the world started to uh, decelerate and slow down. So if we look at a breakdown of the CPI inflation, for example, the fuel price could drop actually uh, instead of rising uh, because of uh, uh, weak global demand. And China may still experience some food, in food inflation from the pork, uh, but for the, uh, within the core inflation, which, which exclude food and fuel, uh, the goods inflation is likely to be quite moderate because China is, uh, I think, uh, the biggest manufacturer in the world, have excess capacity. Uh, so I do not expect uh, a lot of inflation for goods, but inflation, that's actually the main uh, source of inflation, in my view, uh, after the reopening. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think China's, uh, the consumption of uh, service is way below the level of the pre-pandemic pre level. 
And uh, when there is a normalization, uh, just like uh, what happened in the US and Europe, the service inflation could rise quite quickly. Uh, but putting all those factors together, uh, we forecast average CPI inflation of 2.3% for 2023, only slightly higher than the two, uh, our estimated 2% uh, this year. Uh, in other words, uh, the inflation or reflationary pressure uh, does not uh, will not prompt the PBOC, the central bank, to hike interest rate. Got it. Um, Dr. Wang, I'm going to come to you now, because in the readout of the work conference, it was stressed quite early that China will strongly, the word strongly was used, to strongly work to boost market confidence in 2023. How do you see policymakers really strongly boosting market confidence for next year? Well, I think that, uh, you know, China is, is a country that, uh, uh, you know, if the policies are correct, that can really uh, unleash enormous uh, uh, power. So, so you know, the, uh, the, the, I think the, the biggest thing is, is the confidence. I mean, now that the central government is really uh, determined to, to revive the economy and, uh, you know, uh, put out a, a lot of measures, a lot of new uh, confidence boost, uh, 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 you know, plans. So, so what I think is uh, there's, there's quite a few things can be done. For example, you know, coupons. And also, I think that uh, there is, could be also very importantly that, uh, uh, you know, this uh, uh, the tourism, you know. And, and of course, again, uh, we, we, we all we yet to see international travel. You know, I think the international travel is, is, uh, is uh, you know, before the pandemic, there's uh, over 150 million outbound tourists. I think there could be retaliatory uh, uh, <laughs> outbound tourism because all the other countries are open, and now China has been, if everybody have gone through this Omicron uh, once, or, or most of them gone through, they will be not afraid anymore to go uh, uh, travel. So that will, again, also boost the uh, uh, confidence across China. And also there's, there's coming up of a, a Ch New Year and a Chinese New Year. That is not a big season for, uh, for traveling and the consumption. Over 1 billion or 2 billion people will, will travel throughout this uh, holiday season. So all those things, I think, were added up, and uh, I, I really expect that things uh, be be improved by 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 the early next spring. And uh, so, so this is uh, you know, once uh, China is really giving a right policy, uh, the the turnaround can be very quickly. So, so I'm quite uh, uh, optimistic on that. But in terms of other elements to support consumption down the road, especially long term. There was one saying that I found interesting in the uh, work conference, Mr. Ding, I want to come to you now, because the readout said expanding domestic demand must be combined with China's supply side structural reforms. So help our international audience uh, understand what China means by that in terms of how supply side reforms can actually lead to a boost in consumption down the road. Uh, the purpose of uh, the supply side structural reform uh, is to pr uh, improve productivity so that uh, I think uh, high quality and uh, more uh, supplies can be offered to the consumers uh, or actually uh, high quality goods actually could create demand for high quality uh, consumption goods. So it is in this context, I found two remarks in the Central Economic World Conference quite striking and encouraging. Uh, one is uh, about the in, uh, internet platform uh, the, the, uh, the country will continue to uh, develop a digital economy to normalize the regulation, uh, to encourage internet platforms to compete internationally uh, while creating uh, uh, more jobs. The secondly is about, uh, I think, uh, the reiteration uh, about the role of the private sector 
to unwavering, uh, unwavering uh, support uh, the private sector uh, to treat the SOE and the private enterprises equally uh, to encourage their expansion. Uh, so those are a very important message in my view. And, the, uh, and that is, uh, in my view, that is an uh, essential part of the supply side reform uh, that could uh, help to boost confidence, not only in 2023, but in the, in the longer term. Dr. Wang, I want to come to you and talk about the platform economy that Mr. Ding mentioned. So the readout said that policymakers will support platform companies to play an important role in leading the country's development and in creating jobs. And of course, this statement, this comment was not made in 2021's Central Economic Work Conference. Give us your perspectives on that in terms of why do you think policymakers mentioned that aspect of the economy? Well, I think that that message actually is very important. As you know, that uh, all those big uh, companies, uh, you know, BAT or JD and, and uh, all have, uh, you know, employs, uh, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in China in, in the high tech sector. And you see in the last uh, several years, the digital economy in China has, has explosive growth. You know, now it's become the second largest digital uh, market in the world, you know, <laughs> accounts about over 40 uh, some percentage of the GDP now, and uh, and actually, you know, those uh, uh, companies are, are really vital uh, to to lead the internet revolution and digital uh, transformation in China. You know, you have seen a live streaming in uh, in different parts of the rural area, even uh, that is really all driven by these uh, uh, platform companies. So I think now that that message is enormous, uh, as uh, probably uh, uh, Mr. Ding mentioned about. It. It's really enormous. In terms of uh, you know encouraging the private sector, I think ch private sector accounts about sixty percent of China's GDP now, and over half of the fifty percent of federal government tax on that, uh, and local government tax on that. In terms of other work priorities for next year, Jiahe, I want to come to you because another uh, point on the to-do list for economic work next year, the World Conference talks about forestalling and diffusing major economic and financial sector risks. So, given China's property sector is still in recovery mode. And if we are perhaps expecting stronger credit growth for China's economy next year, given that we are expecting faster growth next year, uh, give us a sense of the state of play for financial stability here in China. How strong are China's banks? How well capitalized are they? Uh, how much money have they set aside perhaps to deal with maybe more sour loans down the road? I mean, how strong is China's banking sector to weather any adverse shocks to the financial system? Well, I think I got uh, quite many information for you because we've been investing in both Asia and Hong Kong. Uh, we have about 20% of banks in our portfolio, uh, which totally we take 99% in equity. So we, we really favor banks when we look at, uh, and we read through, through all the uh, financial reports of these banks. Uh, it's, it's very um, easy to tell by reading the financial reports of these banks that China's uh, banking system is now at probably its most uh, healthy status uh, for the past 15 years. I mean, uh, that is expressed in two ways. First is the NPL ratio, the non-performing loan ratio, is now at the, one of the lowest points uh, in, in history. It's usually about 1.5% or 1.3% for, for a large bank. So that's, that's a very, very low level, you know. Uh, when you think that back 22 years ago in 2000, the NPL ratio for banks were about 20 to 25%. So now you can 
cancer, we only have like 1.2%, 1.5%. It's really low risk. Um, the second is that Chinese banks are having a very low leverage. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, what happened back in 2008, the global financial crisis, um, the, the global banking system, especially the US banking system failed uh, and the securities companies failed because they had been over leveraged. You know, the the leverage for a euro bank at that time would be like twenty or thirty times, and some of the security brokers got like two hundred times leverage. That means a very small loss on the asset that they hold uh, would mean a huge amount of destruction to the book value, uh, and which lead to the bankruptcy of many companies. But if you check out the leverage of Chinese banks right now, it's I think I think it's about like twelve over 13 times, which is the ratio between the total asset and the book value. It's about 12 to 13 times for most of the China's large uh, banks. And if you check out the data back in 2015, that was about 15 to 17 uh, times. So the overall leverage has been dropped by almost like 30%. So that means these companies are not over leveraging at all compared with their own history, compared with what happened back in 2008. So they're not over leveraged. So you would be able to say that Chinese banks are really healthy right now. Uh, the only thing that people are worrying is that the property price in metropolises in China are just, uh, well, too expensive. The rental yield is around 1.5%, so that's really low because usually you want the rental yield to be around 4%, but we only have like 1.5% and the rents are stopping to grow back in the uh, well past year. So so that that's a small problem, but I would say that problem is not large because China's banks are not over leveraged on these assets. So I'd say overall speaking, when you look at the banking system, it's pretty healthy. Okay, so Chinese banks overall right now, lower leverage compared to historical norms, historical standards, and also well-provisioned uh, as well to deal with bad loans. So uh, commercial banks uh, are okay. We touched upon consumption. We've touched upon the property sector. I want to turn the attention now to investment and the manufacturing sector. Uh, Jaha, I want to come to you because the meeting also called for speeding up the construction of a modern industrial system for next year. And there were a few industries that were mentioned. New energy, for example, artificial intelligence, biomanufacturing, green and low carbon, quantum computing were all singled out. So besides a consumption boost, Jaha, can we also expect an investment boost for next year as well, especially when it comes to high tech manufacturing? Um, that's definitely the sign because when you think about the scale of the Chinese economy, we, we got 1.4 billion population and now we're the second largest of the world. Uh, we can't uh, keep on developing and be a country with a per capita GDP of 20 or even 30,000 US dollar without the development of our own high technology. So high technology, things like these, also the green energy, stuff like that, has been really important for the growth of the Chinese economy. Uh, in the past three years, it's been a bit hard to introduce the private capital, especially the private capital into this part. Because when you look at high technology, usually private capital are more efficient in this part compared with the public capital, you know, because that really needs a lot of talent to come in. And the private capital would be uh, more efficient with rewarding these talents, giving them, you know, millions or even uh, tens or hundreds of millions of yuan to reward them. Uh, Mr. Ding, what about you? What do you think was the tone set for a wider market access for attracting and utilizing FDI for 2023? Was there differences, nuances compared to previous sayings about FDI? I think China is one of the best uh, biggest beneficiary 
of opening up, including in terms of trade, but also in terms of foreign investment. China continued to talk about the bilateral investment treaty uh, with Europe and, uh, and in its, uh, I think, surrounding areas uh, in ASEAN, ASEAN region. Uh, China continued to promote free trade and investment uh, in the context uh, of uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, RCEP, and also China continued to uh, try to uh, uh, strive to join the CPTPP. Okay, uh, totally understandable, I think, but in terms of the long-term opportunities here in the China market, how much do you think China will contribute to alleviating some of the economic uncertainties that we will see in the global economy in 2023? Uh, most in the market now expect a significant slowdown of the global economy, partly because of the tightening of the financial conditions as uh, major central banks continue to hike rates, also because of uh, the falling real wages uh, due to high inflation, but also, uh, I think, uh, a little bit uh, related to the geopolitical risks. So our forecast for next year, global economy uh, would slow down to 2.5% uh, from an estimated 3.4% uh, this year. And for China, I think the growth may rebound from 3% to 5.8%. So arithmetically, uh, excluding China, uh, the global growth would be even lower, lower than 2%. Uh, so that is, I think, uh, uh, already, I think, suggest, I think, the contribution of China's economy. Uh, and more importantly, if we look at the source of growth, source of recovery, in China, it's likely to be dominated by domestic demand. Uh, we actually see net export to contribute, uh, uh, the contribution would be negligible, almost zero. And this year, uh, net export contribu contributed about one percentage point to China's GDP growth. Uh, next year, because of the uh, weaker external amount, but also because of falling commodity price, we may see negative export growth for China, and import growth actually could outperform uh, uh, export because of uh, recovering domestic demand. Uh, so uh, I think uh, if China's import demand start to increase, that would benefit the rest of the world, uh, in, yeah. in, in, in the, in, including China's demand, for example, a commodity, people traveling more, I think the demand for crude oil, uh, the, the property sector start to stabilize, that would help uh, with the base metal, uh, and people start to go to work normally, and that could actually uh, increase uh, the demand for luxury goods. Uh, and when uh, China's borders start to open, uh, we may see more international travel, and the rest of the world may uh, again see a lot of Chinese tourists. Thank all of our panelists for joining us today. We touched upon sort of the short-term signals that were sent from the uh, Economic Work Conference. I think we can all agree ensuring economic stability, that is gonna be the overall tone for China's economy next year, but there's definitely a more pro-growth bias in terms of boosting consumption to really spur the recovery that we will see in China next year. Uh, and I think that will definitely contribute to alleviating some of the economic uncertainties that we will see in a global economy that will be slowing down in 2023. All right, so I wanna thank all our guests for joining us today in our edition of BizTalk, where we try to decipher some of the signals from the Central Economic Work Conference. So Dr. Wang, Jiahe, and Mr. Ding, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.